Killing Women is the title of the newly released book by Rod Sadler. And today we are going to talk to Rod about this book and the title, which is is very, um, what do you call it, eye-opening. And it's a great read. But I thank you right now for joining Imagine Publicity on Air, which is partner sponsored by Wild Blue Press and Imagine Publicity. And we are on the Inside Lens Network. You can find us at, you know, wherever you're listening to this podcast, we're there. The network itself covers a variety of topics for anyone who is interested in current events, issues of importance, true crime, business history, and of course, books. I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. It's a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. So not only do I offer full services to anyone out there that's interested, but also I offer training to many of you who prefer to do your own social media accounts and maybe just don't know how to get started. So you can reach me at imaginepublicity.com. And that is my business plug for the day. I want to welcome Rod Sadler, a new Wild Blue Press author, and the book is Killing Women. Hi, Rod. Hello, Delilah. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, I'm excited to to talk with you about this book. It's, it was quite a chilling uh, read, to say the least. But first of all, I'd like for my listeners, and, and hopefully you are all potential readers of this book, to know a little bit about you, the author. Who is the guy behind the book? So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little be, brief background about yourself and how you came about writing this book. Oh, sure. Um, I am a a retired police officer from Michigan. Um, I served 30 years in law enforcement. Um, I began as a campus police officer and then uh, was hired by a rural sheriff's office and uh, spent 25 years there uh, before I retired. And Early in my career, uh, I had come across some information, genealogical information from my dad that my great-great-grandfather had served as the sheriff in uh, Ingham County, Michigan, which is uh, where our state capital, Lansing, is. And um, so while I was doing some research uh, on family history, I came across a a gruesome murder um, that had happened in 1897 when he was the sheriff and decided that that would be a great book. And uh, so after my retirement, I wrote my first book, and uh, it was called To Hell I Must Go. And then uh, I enjoyed that so much that um, I wrote a second book about a double murder here in Michigan in 1955, and that was titled The Slayer Waits. And now I'm hooked. Um, I love to write. And uh, so that was uh, really the beginnings of uh, killing women. I find that to be quite true with a lot of authors 
have a similar story as you do, whether not necessarily all are retired law enforcement, many are, um, but it, it's a perfect segue into the true crime topic. Uh, you know, you, I find that people like to research some of the crimes either that they worked on or maybe had not been solved yet. Do you find that work for you as well? Um, you know, I I haven't written about any crimes worked on uh, per se, although I have had a lot of suggestions from uh, former colleagues and, and friends that they'll send me a note, oh, you should write about that, that murder you worked on here or there. Um, actually, I prefer not to do that. I prefer to, uh, to do the research on... Uh, on interesting cases that that I think need to be written about, and uh, I'm actually working on my fourth book already. Any sneak peeks on that? Uh, I will tell you only that it involves a cold case, an unsolved murder. Mm-hmm. Very good, very good. We'll be looking forward to the new book. Well, let's let's talk about killing women. Um, Don Miller was quiet and reserved. As a former youth pastor, he seemed a devout Christian. No one would ever suspected that the recent graduate of Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice was a serial killer. However, when Miller was arrested for the attempted murder of two teenagers in 1978, police quickly realized he was probably responsible for the disappearances of four women. How did you come across this case, and what about it grabbed you enough to decide to write about it? Well, my um, ability to write about this uh, really comes from a unique perspective, and that is that while I was involved in law enforcement for 30 years, I fostered uh, relationships with many of the people that were directly involved in this case, Uh, I grew up in uh, the small town of Williamston, which is about 20 miles east of the Michigan State University campus. And I graduated the year that Don Miller was arrested uh, in 1978. And so while this case was unfolding for the previous year and a half, I had followed that in the newspapers. Um, And then when when his arrest, occurred in 1978, I followed the news reports and his conviction and the location of the bodies. Um, oddly enough, his um, his downfall was the, the rape of a 14-year-old girl and, and the, her attempted murder and then the attempted murder of her 13-year-old brother. That occurred in uh, Eaton County, uh, which is just to the uh, west of Ingham County, and ironically, that's where I ended up uh, working for 25 years as a deputy for the sheriff's office. So I had uh, that kind of a unique perspective in that regard too. So that's how I, I kind of came across that, and then I realized that um, in 2031, um, Don Miller will be released from. Michigan Department of Corrections and will live among us again. And that's just a short 10 years away. So he's got 10 more years to go, right? 
Well, he does. He's scheduled for actually a parole hearing next year again. His last parole hearing was in 2016, I believe. And uh, his next one is scheduled for next year. So um, theoretically, he could get out next year. And, you know, speaking of these parole hearings, and the background of the victims and the background of the victims' families who have survived this terrible tragedy, um, throughout the years, it's never over for them because of the judicial system and the way that it works. How many times has he come up for parole that they have had to either um, be there or submit depositions or victim impact statements? They they don't just put them away and forget about it and move on with their lives, do they? No, they don't. Um, honestly, I would venture to say that they live in fear, uh, some degree of fear, for the rest of their lives, fearing that, that he will eventually get out. And this stretches back... Um, at least 20 years when an organization or local group was, was put together um, called CCAP. It was the Committee for Community Awareness and Protection. And it was a group of uh, uh, lawmakers, citizens, attorneys, survivors that were trying to find a way to see if they could keep Don Miller behind bars because back in in the late 90s he was due to actually be released at that point what many people don't realize is that don miller uh, is only in prison right now um, because of a charge of possessing a garrote or a strangulation device in his prison cell back in the mid 90s by the late 90s he had already served his time for the murders of um, two women, even though he had killed four. And uh, that was the result of a still controversial plea deal um, in order to locate the bodies of the victims. Let's let's talk about this plea deal. And, uh, you know, is it my understanding that in order to accept the plea deal, the the family members have to be in agreement that this is what they're willing to accept in order to find their their loved one who is missing? Yes. And in, in this particular case, um, there were uh, two victims. Um, Martha Sue Young and Christine Stewart. And Martha Sue Young's mother, Sue, um, who has passed away, uh, was reluctant to um, to the plea deal offering, uh, whereas Christine Stewart's husband, Ernie, was was uh, was very receptive. All he wanted was his wife back. So. Um, Sue Young eventually uh, resigned herself to the fact that that this would be the only way they would find her daughter's body. And and while she was against it at first, she did eventually accept the um, the deal, so to speak. And what impact has that has this plea deal had on these families over the many years? Well, I think that it 
not only the families but the the general public um, is the fact that someday Don Miller will be released from prison and will walk among us again. And that bothers a lot of people. Um, some say, hey, that's the deal that was made and and um, they need to honor it, and they will. Um, but others are appalled that, that such a deal was made. It was a difficult decision for the uh, Ingham County prosecuting attorney at the time uh, because he had based his entire um, election campaign on the fact that he was going to abate uh, plea bargaining because there was so much of it back in the, in the mid-'70s, and he was going to do away with that. But he had no idea at the time that he would be faced with a series of disappearances and murders um, that were unparalleled in, in Ingham County history at the time. And in order to give those families closure, um, he uh, brokered the plea deal with, with the defense attorney. Uh, as a volunteer, I volunteer for a na- national missing persons organization, so I've worked with many families who have missing loved ones and in similar circumstances where, you know, a, a murderer is, is uh, caught and convicted and still will not tell. So I, I know that a lot of these families out there would jump at the chance and make that same deal just to be able to find out where their loved one is and bring them back home. It's people who have never suffered through that may not have an understanding and think, you know, making a plea deal like that is, is not in their best interest. However, their, their main priority is finding their loved one and bringing them home. So I can totally understand um, how this came about. I really can, but it's obviously has had an impact over their lives, but it could have been a lot worse. They could have had the guy behind bars all this time and still not know where their loved one is. Exactly. Um, It's, it's a known fact that uh, a serial killer um, likely will not, um, give up information regarding his victims. Um, And I I recently read a book by uh, Robert Ressler. Uh, He's the FBI um, behavioral sciences profiler who came up actually with the term serial killer or serial murderer. And uh, he said that um, they don't do that. They don't give up information because once they're in prison, their last really hope is their loved ones and their families who still believe that they're innocent. And so once they begin to, to give up information about their victims and stuff, they lose the love and support of their family. And that's why they often don't do that. Um, I think some experts pointed out in the Miller case that without that plea deal, um, the bodies of Christine Stewart and Martha Sue Young and Wendy Bush would never have been found. 
I agree. Again, I said I've seen this happen so many times. I even worked a case where the two murderers are on death row and wouldn't give it up. But then when they uh, somehow or another, it, it sunk in that, you know, I'm going to die here. So we were able to make a deal with the devil, so to speak, and they gave it up. So we were happy in that respect to be able to bring a resolution for the family. And it's, you know, I just can't stress how important it is to these families. Just They just want to know. They, it, it's a limbo state they live in. And I feel like, and maybe maybe you agree or not, I feel like once they get to that point, like the families in your book, um, they can deal with with the parole hearings. They can deal with what comes next in, in keeping this man behind bars. But the thing they can't deal with is not knowing, not knowing where their loved one is. Right, and and I think that that anybody would agree, in in not necessarily even in a murder case, but uh, when there's a death in the family, um, people need that closure. Um, they need some sort of a of a ceremony or or a remembrance. They need some closure to get on with their lives, and without that, it's it's extremely difficult. I know, and one of the things that we stress in in our work is we don't use the word closure anymore because they really never have closure. They've lost this loved one. They've been through all these years of pain and suffering, and some go on for generations. So they're they're it may be solved, but they're it's not like a death in the family. It, it's just not like that. It's such a different type of loss that general public doesn't really understand too well. Um, so anyway, let's kind of segue into Don Miller. Let's talk about what kind of person he was, his family background. And wasn't he sort of a trusted member of the community at one time? Um, Don Miller was uh, a very quiet individual, um, almost withdrawn. I remember um, when I spoke with uh, one of the investigating officers, actually was the first officer that that reported Martha Sue Young's disappearance. And he said what made Don Miller noticeable was that he was so... um, unnoticeable, so to speak. Uh, He just was a face in the crowd in high school. Um, He was in in the band. He carried his trombone with him everywhere. Uh, I I got the feeling uh, from talking to some some people involved in the case that he had a strict upbringing. Um, His hair was always greased back. He always wore... um, dress pants and a white shirt and um, dress shoes, even to to school. Um, So he was a very, again, quiet, withdrawn person, uh, very uh, heavy into Christianity. Um, And that that came to light um, in his... uh, sentencing hearing um, 
when he was charged in the Garak case um, back in the late 90s when the prosecuting attorney, uh, Jeff Sauter, said that his persona is a disguise. It's the same disguise that he used to lure his victims. And um, basically, uh, what he was referring to is that uh, to him uh, and to everybody else, Don Miller hid behind his religion um, and that he was a psychopath and that uh, he used his religion. Um, and that was evident in the, uh, in the interviews that he did with the police it was, uh, I couldn't have done that. Uh, I'm a Christian. Um, uh, and so that's the type of person Don Miller was. Uh, I, I think if you spoke with his family, they would probably disagree to that or with that. But um, all the indications are that I found out uh, is that he hid behind his religion. And he had a total of Four victims, is, isn't that correct? Yes, four that he murdered. Um, his first victim was actually his fiancée, um, Martha Sue Young, and she came up missing or was reported missing on January 1st, 1977. And the police had absolutely uh, nothing to go on. They did search after search after search, they suspected that Don was um, responsible for her disappearance, uh, but they couldn't prove it. And without a body, they couldn't charge him. And so uh, about 10 months later, some pheasant hunters found her clothing laid out in a field um, northeast of Lansing. And her clothing was laid out as if she was in it um, her panties were inside of her pants. Um, her bra was inside of her top. Her top was inside of her coat. It was all laid out as if she had been in it, but she wasn't. And when police found that, um, they came to the conclusion that she was likely dead at that point. Uh, but they still didn't have anything to charge him with. And so the following June... Uh, an employee at the Michigan State University WKAR radio station uh, came up missing, Marita Choquette, and her body was found two weeks later in a farm field, uh, which would have been south of um, Lansing, southeast of Lansing. And then uh, on the same day that Marita Choquette's body was found, uh, an MSU student by the name of Wendy Bush came up missing. And police weren't really sure that there was any foul play involved in her disappearance because she was sort of a, a free spirit, so to speak. And um, two months later, um, a school teacher who was walking uh, from in the East Lansing area uh, from a bus stop to her home uh, came up missing. And then her name was Christine Stewart. And then two days later, uh, Miller broke into a home in Eaton County where he raped a 14-year-old girl and and was trying to kill her at the time that her brother came in the house. So when Miller turned on, on the brother uh, and uh, strangled him and then stabbed him twice in the chest, 
to ensure that he was dead. At that same time, the, the 14-year-old girl was able to escape and run out into traffic and uh, flag down help. And that's how uh, Miller was eventually caught. So these these murders happened in pretty close time frame with each other. Yeah, it was over um, about an 18-month period from the first to the last. And um, Miller actually said in a, in a prison uh, interview um, that as time went on, he took he took more and more chances and became less concerned about things. And so uh, that's why, and I think that's why they, they occurred more frequently right at the end over a two month period. Do you think there's, there's more crimes and disappearances and murders that could be attributed to him? Oh, I wish you hadn't asked me that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, well, no, no, that's okay. Um, I think I'm going to reserve comment on that. Um, and, and I can't really go into any details right now. Um, but I, I think I would just reserve comment on that right now. Okay. I respect that. And, and, you know, the possibilities are always out there. Well, you know, I'm I'm sure he was he given a very thorough psych background uh, and assessment. Um, and in fact, I think I read where he confessed to two of them under re- regressive psychotherapy. Um, was there anything brought out in those assessments as to what his motive was or did he just enjoy killing? Well, uh, I don't think it came out in in the assessments uh, what his motive was. I think his his first mo- uh, I think from the letter that I received from him um, that his his motive in the first one uh, with Martha Sue Young was that uh, they were dating and she didn't open up to him about certain problems they may have been having, whether they were perceived problems or actual problems. And that bothered him to the point where he lost it one night, um, New Year's Eve, 1976, and uh, he strangled her. In his letter to me, he told me that, um, that the other three killings were... Uh, essentially copycat killings. He would see a woman and that would remind him of Martha Sue Young and then he would take action against that woman and kill her. Uh, Honestly, do I believe that? Um, No, I don't. Uh, And the reason that I say that is uh, when when he assaulted the 14-year-old girl, uh, he could not possibly have seen her and and had her remind him of his fiance that he killed. I just don't see that. I think that uh, and while I don't put this in the book, um, I think that he was probably a sexual psychopath. Hmm. Well, did he have personal relationships with any of the other victims or just Martha Sue? 
Just Martha Sue. Just Martha Sue. Although there was some um there was some odd connections um that are mentioned in the book um where he was in in one way or another um there was a connection between the other victims. It wasn't um as if he knew them or uh but he, he worked as a security guard and a couple of the places that he worked were places where a couple of these women had frequented um, a couple stores, things like that. So there were some odd connections there, but I don't think they were ever officially tied into the case. Okay. Well, about the, I, I just kind of want to touch back with the regressive psychotherapy. Are the results of that, are those admissible as evidence? Or would it be uh, I, more like a you know a lie detector test? I would say no, um, and and I I can't cite any case law on that. But I don't think that um, regressive psychotherapy uh, basically is um, is hypnosis. And uh, no, I don't think that would be allowed in in Michigan courts and and probably in very few courts around the country. Um, I think it's used as, simply as another tool in law enforcement. And and by that, I mean, um, I'll give you an example. I was a police artist for uh, 25 years of my career. And would, I, would they ever base an arrest um, solely on a uh, composite drawing that I did? Absolutely not. Um, it's just a means to an end. So it's just another tool that they use. And in this case, they were able to um, basically learn that that he did kill him. Uh, but part of that deal was that he was going to get this plea deal if if he would um, subject himself to this regressive psychotherapy in order to, to locate the bodies. And so that's what he did. Um, there are those that, that doubt his performance in that regressive psychotherapy. They think that he was acting. Uh, you know, the I, I'm always I've always been fascinated with the psychology of a criminal such as this one, and it um, I don't know. It there's a lot of unanswered questions about Don Miller's psychology and what. What what was the tipping point for him? Was it the argument with Martha Sue that started all of this, or or was this something that was latent in his behavior that was just building up and building up over the years, and then for him to go on to murder and assault other victims that he really didn't have the type of relationship that he had with Martha Sue. Um, I don't know. How how do you answer all of that? Uh, that's a, a great question, and, and I guess I leave that to somebody that has a little higher pay scale than I do, um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Um, Dr. Frank Ockberg, uh, who's nationally renowned psychiatrist, former director of the Michigan Department of Public Health, um, he stated very clearly that Don Miller is a uh, a part of a small community of of killers who stalk and torture and kill their victims and uh, get a 
a narcissistic sense of gratification out of that. And uh, Jeff Sauter, who was the Eaton County prosecutor, said there's there's nothing in Miller's history, um, prison history, that would lead anyone to think that that he's been rehabilitated. And so, honestly, you know, I, I've talked with Don Miller's dad um, several times, uh, and specifically have talked about Don and Don's behavior. And he doesn't know what caused Don to snap or how this all came about. And Don said in his letter to me that that it was simply his anger uh, toward women. Where that came from, I don't know. Interestingly enough, in the letter that he sent to me, um, he does not mention the attack on the 14-year-old girl. He talks very freely about uh, the murder of Martha Sue and, and taking the lives of three other women, but he never mentions the assault on the 14-year-old teenager. Well, he probably didn't get as much gratification out of it since his mission was not completed. Well, you may be absolutely correct on that. Um he was literally uh, on her back with a small belt wrapped around her neck, and she was beginning to pass out. And at the exact moment that that belt broke is the moment that her brother walked into the kitchen. And uh, fortunately, he didn't see the assault, uh, but Miller quickly turned his attention to go out and assault the brother. Um, so... Those two, whether they know it or not, um, those two teens saved each other's lives that day. Yeah, talk about divine intervention. That's definitely. Yeah. Well, and, and yes. this, the fact of the matter is, had that not happened the way it did, you may not have had him dead to right on all of these other cases. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, there was a, a witness that pulled in the driveway um, as the uh, as the teen girl ran out of the house, and he confronted Miller and was able to get his license number, and that's how it all all came together. Because police had suspected by that time that that Miller was responsible for at least two of the other disappearances, and once they got that license plate number, they knew they knew at that point that he was their guy. How many jurisdictions were involved in, in solving these cases? Uh, well, you had um, uh, Ingham County is where um, the girls came up missing. Um, two of the bodies were found in Clinton County, which is just to the north of Lansing. And then uh, one body was found in Eaton County. And, of course, the uh, sexual assault occurred in Eaton County also. So, Basically, you had the, um, all three sheriff's offices involved at some point, not to mention every police agency in the, the mid-Michigan area was was trying to locate these missing women. So uh, I, I would say quite a few. I don't have an exact number, but um, basically every police agency in the mid-Michigan area. 
Were all of the agencies cooperating with each other pretty well? And the reason I ask this question is is so many times you hear of cases that, you know, some some part of the crime happened in one county or one state, some part happened in another, and they don't want to trade information uh, for whatever territorial thing that they have. And it just, then there again, this leads to the case going cold and information and witnesses go cold. Um, So did you find in your research that these jurisdictions were cooperative? Uh, Actually, yes, I did, Um, which is unusual for that time period, if you will. Um, You're right, so often um, agencies don't communicate uh, and and back in the 70s when you had um, uh, serial killers running, like uh, the Bundy case, I'll use that as an example, Ted Bundy, um, police agencies weren't communicating among, among each other. Uh, but in this particular case, they were. Ingham, Eaton, and Clinton County all worked pretty close together. Um, Michigan State University Police, um, the Michigan State Police uh, as a support agency, Everybody was was working pretty close together and exchanging information to try to find these women. Well, I find that to be very refreshing to know that, you know, even like you say, in that particular time period, we didn't have uh, the Internet. We didn't have all of the different agencies that are reporting now, like NCIC and CODIS and, and NamUs, and they go on and on, which you would think would would be extremely good tools to be able to solve a lot of cold cases that are out there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, And and that's an ongoing effort. I I think that that you're gonna see more and more cold cases uh, solved with, um, with obviously with DNA technology. Um, Look at the, the Golden State Killer case. I don't know a lot about that, but I do know they used a public genealogical um, website to upload a, a DNA profile, if I recall correctly. I mean, just think of the possibilities. They, I, you know, I am in contact with a lot of different people on social media that um, either are surviving members of uh, a crime like that. Um, I one person in particular who is head of Othram, and they're doing tremendous work with matching DNA. Um, and and like you say, there's the geneal genealogical organizations out there that are do every day. I see a new case, a new cold case where they are able to make a match because of the DNA. Um, the other side of that. And you know this this is kind of off topic, but the other side of it is that it's so important um in my opinion, to start taking DNA on rest uh i I have one case in particular that I'm thinking about that um it's it's an old case in Oklahoma where the mother has just traveled all over the country to get media attention, to get law enforcement agencies to get on board because that's the only thing that's going to save or the only thing that's going to solve her case in particular and a lot of other cases. How do you feel about that? Do you think that's intrusive or do you think it's necessary? Uh 
That's a great question. Um, I, honestly, I think that in a in a felony case, uh, I think it should be uh, absolutely taken. Um, that's my own personal opinion. In a misdemeanor case, um, probably not. You know, your basic drunk driver or or simple arsony or something like that. But in a felony case, uh, I absolutely believe that. Yes. Well, we will get a lot of a lot of other cases solved if we do. So let me ask you this: as we're we're kind of running down on time, what does the future look like if Don Miller is released, and is there any other alternative to keep him away from the public? Well, at one time um, back in the late '90s, there was a bill introduced in Michigan. Um, and it was introduced in an effort um, to to keep Don Miller confined, and it would it had to do with um, with uh, having him evaluated uh, by a psychiatrist as he approached his release, and if that psychiatrist felt that he was still a danger, um, and, and I don't. I don't have this in front of me, but um, uh, there would be a hearing held and the state could confine him beyond his incarceration in a, in a state hospital um, for a period of time. That bill never passed. There were uh, a few other states that had bills similar to that that did pass. Um, but Michigan's did not, and it dropped there. Um, my concern um, as a former police officer is that Don Miller has already shown his propensity uh, for um, young women, uh, teenage girls. And when he gets out in 2031, he'll be in his mid-70s. Um, still obviously old enough to kill. Now, I spoke with his dad just yesterday, and we were talking about um, what if Don got out of prison, and and, uh, he told me that um, Don was looking forward to being able to um, come back and live with him and help him out because he's he's very elderly now. Um, Will that happen? Uh, I don't think it'll happen next year, um, but in 2031, who knows? Uh, I don't. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable um, with that. Um, but I, I will tell you also that uh, I didn't make any judgments in my book. Um, in the preface, uh, I told the reader that they would have to decide about Don Miller. Um, whether or not he was cured or whether or not he was still a danger, um, whether or not the, the case against him uh, with the garot was a contrived case by prison officials, um, because that that suggestion has been made also. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very complex situation, and like it or not, in 2031, he'll have served his time. Wow. 
that is true. And you know, you serve your time and and you're done. With with the past parole hearings that he's had and and possibly the future parole hearings, what has been the deciding factor to deny parole? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I have never um, been privy to those, uh, and I will just share with you what what uh, Don's dad has told me, and that it's really not a hearing as much as it is an interview, uh, and the per- and the parole officials will um, have the um, potential parolee scribe the crimes in in every detail um, about how that person committed them. And even though uh, Don's dad was allowed at the parole hearing um, five years ago, he said he was not allowed to say anything. And if he did, the parole hearing was over. And so he had to sit there and, and listen to what happened. Honestly, getting back to your question, I don't know what the deciding factor is. I really don't. I don't know if it's a, a lack of remorse on, on Don Miller's part or, or exactly what it is, why they denied it. Maybe it's simply the seriousness of his, of his offense. Um, it's a great question. I don't have an answer for you. Well, let's just hope that whatever it was, it continues to work to keep him, you know, from from getting out any earlier um, on parole. So let's tell listeners, where can they buy Killing Women? Uh, Killing Women is uh, it's published by Wild Blue Press, um, so you certainly can, can get it through Wild Blue Press. Um, it is available on Amazon. Uh, yesterday it was uh, the number one release, uh, new release for uh, serial killer biographies. Um, so that was kind of exciting. So you can get it at Wild Blue Press, uh, Amazon. It is available on the Barnes & Noble website uh, and also on the Schuler's website. I don't know if Schuler's is a national chain or not, but um, it's available on both their websites and uh, I believe I had a friend check yesterday, at least here in the mid-Michigan area, um, it will be available, uh, the physical copies, at the Barnes & Noble store also. And it also is available in Kindle. And uh, I was really surprised uh, they'll have an audio version that will be available in December. So I'm really excited about that. Their audio books are fabulous. And again, Wild Blue Press has done a wonderful job with uh, helping you as an author to make your your book a dream come true, so to speak. Um, they do tremendous work for authors. So I, I highly recommend them to anyone out there who's who's got that magic book. Make sure you go to the wildbluepress.com and uh, submit. What have you got to lose? Exactly. They, they've been wonderful to work with. They really have. Well, you also have a website, correct? I do. Uh, rodsadler.com, R-O-D-S-A-D-L-E-R.com. Um, I have uh, Killing Women listed on there along with uh, my first two books. Um, and you, if you 
go to that website. There's a link where you can click, and it'll take you right to Amazon to order them. Well, this has just been a great conversation, Rod. I've enjoyed it. The book, I I can't recommend enough. It's a very good read, very, you know, detailed um, about these crimes and how, how Don Miller finally got taken down and how we can keep him back where he is. So I, I commend you for writing an exciting read and I hope to get to have you back when you when you release your next one. Oh well thank you so much, Delilah. I really appreciate that and uh it's been a pleasure to be on your show or on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Well, as we close out another episode and, you know, you've you've heard about some very gruesome crimes and they happen. They do happen out there and we can never be too careful uh, the way the situation is in our country and in our world right now. It's kind of a scary place, but as you go out about your business and as you interact with other people just remember one thing and that is to be kind to each other 